0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week on Monaco Radio. And this week, we visit Vienna
1: for their design week. Once the object is repaired with duct tape, the object goes back in the distraction room.
0: To be destroyed by To be
1: destroyed by again <laughs> by someone else, exactly.
0: Plus, a new regional media outlet in Manchester.
2: When we think about holding people to account, I think it's as much about holding business to account as it is local councils or local government. All that and much more
0: here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start The Curator with the latest Foreign Desk Explainer. Last weekend, Slovakia narrowly voted in Robert Fico, leader of the Smer party as prime minister. He is in a legal battle with his president and one of his few allies appears to be Hungary's pro-Putin leader, Viktor Orbán. Andrew Muller explains how this new leadership is at odds with the country that Slovakia has been in recent years.
3: The fact of the matter is that uh, Smer is the winner. And we of course respect that, although we think it's bad news for the country. And it will be even worse news if uh, Mr Piso forms a government.
4: It is absolutely no shade on Slovakia to observe that its elections tend to come and go without prompting advanced conniptions throughout Europe and the wider Western sphere. But in the current context, when a European election is won by a party and a leader promising not to contribute a single further bullet to the defence of Ukraine and pitching for better relations with Russia, mild shudders are discernible from Kiev to Brussels to London to Washington DC and beyond. Much the more so when the country in question is a neighbour of Ukraine's. Slovakia held a general election on Saturday. The victors, after a fashion, were a party called Smere, who have meandered somewhat around Slovakia's political compass since the late 1990s, from Blairite centre-leftists to nostalgic socialists to paranoid nationalists. Smere won 42 seats, which leaves them a stretch short of the 76 required for a working majority in Slovakia's National Council. We will return shortly to Smear's prospects of assembling a governing coalition, but to understand Smear and the trepidation that presently attends them, it is necessary to understand Smear's founder and leader, Robert Fico. Fico is a well-known quantity, at least in Slovakia, where he has already had two cracks at being Prime Minister, from 2006 to 2010 and 2012 to 2018. His last term ended in resignation amid a crisis occasioned by the murder of Slovak investigative journalist Jan Kuciak and his fiancée, Martina Krushnarova. Kuciak had been investigating an Italian mafia clan which was alleged to have links to one of Fizzo's assistants. A little over a year ago, Fitzo himself narrowly escaped prison when Parliament just decided to uphold his MP's immunity from prosecution on organised crime charges. Are
5: you normal,
6: man? How dare you talk to a member of Parliament like that? What crime have I committed? What crime have I committed? Explain to me.
4: Born in 1964, Fizzo is of that generation of Eastern Europeans who were raised under communism. As a young man, indeed, he was a member of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia and who then saw all the certainties of their upbringings dismantled during their early adulthood. Fizzo was first elected to parliament in 1992 as a polished and plausible 20-something social democrat.
7: I worked for three years in the communist regime. I remember how the country looked before 1989. I remember how the country looked uh, before our entry into the European Union. And uh, if someone asks me about uh, my position uh, towards the European Union, I will always answer. Membership of Slovakia in the European Union so far has been a very, very successful story. Very, very successful story.
4: Listeners may by now have spotted parallels verging on the eerie with the trajectory of Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban, another bright young beacon of an emergent early 1990s liberal Eastern Europe turned grouchy middle-aged 21st century reactionary populist, another Prime Minister of a member of the EU and NATO who spends much of his time railing against the EU and NATO, another leader of a former Soviet hostage nation turned bellicose Russia apologist... Unsurprisingly, Orbán has enthusiastically welcomed Fico's victory in a way that most of the rest of Europe conspicuously has not. Among those being notably muted in their congratulations, incidentally, is Slovakia's own president, Zuzana Kapotova, who is presently pursuing a legal action against Fico after she and her family received death threats from people justifying themselves with FITSO-esque conspiracy theories. Largely fantastical presumptions about the sinister omnipotence of Hungarian-American philanthropist George Soros. Before assessing what impact a withdrawal of Slovakia's support for Ukraine may have, we need to look at Fico's chances of being in any position to withdraw it. His likeliest path to a parliamentary majority appears to be a coalition including Hlas, Social Democrats led by another former Prime Minister, Peter Pellegrini, and the Slovak National Party, a wretched sack of out-and-proud Putinist weirdos who gather beneath one of those emblems of an eagle clutching a crest, which always does so much to re assure the anxious. To entice both partners, Fico may have to give the impression that he is at once less and more cranky than he looks, which on past form is probably not beyond him. If Fito does manage to corral this crowd behind him, he will find himself in some position to insert a spanner into the works where the defence of Ukraine is concerned. Up until now, Slovakia has been commendably generous to its beleaguered neighbour. As a percentage of GDP, Slovakia has kicked in more than anybody bar Denmark, Norway and the three Baltic states. Slovakia has furnished Ukraine with, among much else, anti-tank missiles, air defense systems, generators, winter uniforms, and its entire stable of 13 MiG-29 fighter jets. Slovakia has also, given its handy location, served as a logistical hub for the transport of equipment from elsewhere. The practicalities of all of which can doubtless be worked around. What will be more concerning in Western capitals, other than Budapest and Belgrade, is a perception that might take root in Moscow, that Europe's resolve is fracturing and might be fractured further. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And for
0: Toast Stories this week, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs explores the relocation and renaming process ahead for the Museum of London.
6: I on the side, it's like a
8: Sharon Aymant is the director of the Museum of London. Get
6: all my steps in.
8: Last year the museum closed to prepare to relocate to a new home elsewhere in the city. Sharon is the woman behind the historic move. She explains some of the history and perennial problems with the last building.
4: So,
6: the Museum of London moved into London Wall in 1976, and it was a vision of a kind of master plan for society and a kind of way of urban living then, a part of the Barbican which brought people up onto high walks. But that kind of vision of living, people living away from cars, cars being on kind of a different level to the living spaces and cultural spaces of people. It was never fulfilled and didn't work. And so it left the Museum of London isolated behind a roundabout. And by, even by the time we were opening at London Wall in 1976, it was impenetrable and people couldn't find the Museum of London. And we have this amazing collection, you know, 7.5 million objects, uh, which span the whole of London's history 2,000 years ago since the Romans arrived and created Londinium, but before that even. And it was hidden away in a museum that nobody could get into.
8: An inaccessible building doesn't bode well for a major cultural institution. So, when the opportunity arose for the Museum of London to inhabit the general market at Smithfield, Sharon jumped on it. This
6: is going to be brilliant for events. Well, the first year we're going to use it for events and then the second year uh, we will have exhibitions in
8: here. The building and the surrounding area have a special history. Well, there's always been a market here in
6: Smithfield. It was a big area, space, a big open space, A field, outside of the city walls and for 900 years it's been used as a market but until the mid-1800s it was a place where live cattle were driven to Smithfield and slaughtered here and sold so the Victorians decided this was too horrible uh, not technologically advanced a bit wild Uh, it was the site of St Bartholomew's Fair all sorts of extraordinary things have happened at Smithfield so the Victorians built a set of markets, um, four or five, uh, and the architect was Horace Jones who built Tower Bridge. Uh, very good at building markets. Um, but our part that we are now going to inhabit uh, had lain derelict for about 30 years. And um, when I first arrived in 2015, I was just blown away by the possibilities. and. It's got great big basements, which were stores for food. It's got a cold store in the poultry market, so insulated. What great place for collections! We need dark, cool temperatures, even temperatures to store the London collection. High roofs, seven meters space, so that we can put fantastic objects on display. And then, I think. Uh, the nirvana for all museums, multiple entrances.
8: And those multiple entrances will be put to good use when the building is completed and finally becomes the Museum of London. Well, the name will also change to London Museum in 2026. For Sharon, the many entrances will help the museum become one with its surroundings.
6: So the great thing about this museum and again it being in a market building is there's a flow from the streets into the museum and out again and we want to be as permeable as possible and that means that we don't want, we don't want an intellectual barrier to the content, to an exhibition, to an idea, to a story and we don't want a physical barrier either. And when you think about why a museum of London should be like this, well duh, you know, the content is out there on the streets. We've got 10 million curators who live in London. So we want them to use the museum, to flow in and out of the museum, and to engage with us.
8: By taking over an existing structure, the new museum is instantly more environmentally friendly than if a new building had to be created. And the emphasis on sustainability doesn't stop there.
6: And then, because we're museum folk, you know, we went in and saved everything. So we've got all sorts of stuff ready to go back into the building. You know, we often say that we have kept about 70% of the building. Of course, we couldn't keep all of it. Some of it was completely falling down and things like that. But we've worked from the principle that we will retain as much as possible. And that has really held us in good stead. And then, of course, you know, we've been looking at how we operate sustainably as well.
8: Heating and cooling these enormous galleries is just one of many, many challenges still to be faced by this ambitious project in the coming years. But it is just this scale of ambition that makes a brand new museum in London that emerges from the infrastructure and history of the city itself such an exciting prospect.
6: And so now this is like amazing. This is absolutely amazing. So, there's a possibility of it being a museum.
0: And we are back with the curator, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To Vienna now, to Vienna Design Week, to be more precise. Monaco's Alexei Korolev visited the 17th edition of the festival.
3: I am Gabriel Roland, the director of Vienna Design Week. Um, Vienna Design Week always uses temporary interim use buildings. Um, We had everything from a Baroque palais over a factory storage, a hospital, uh, office buildings, a bank, and so on and so forth. We never had a hotel, though, up until this year. Uh, this year we have the privilege of working in this 60s architecture. It used to be a care home, then it was a hotel. Now it's um, going to be uh, redone. It's a, it's a very Viennese uh, spot. You feel like you're in the city, and at the same time it's an unusual place in the city because it's right on the last row of buildings before the Prater starts, the big green.
7: As is usual at Vienna Design Week, there is no overarching theme, and the exhibits and installations deal in everything from graphic design to ceramics to furniture to something altogether more DIY.
1: Hello, so my name is Jean-Baptiste, so this project is called the Distraction Room.
7: Jean-Baptiste Gambier is a Netherlands-based French designer.
1: So this is a project I am working on in collaboration with uh, another visual artist who is also a friend, who is called Hugo Beregaray. This is an interactive experience, uh, basically, which is uh, separated in two rooms. We have in one part the distraction room and the other part is the repair room. Every visitor is welcome to first go into the distraction room. It's one person at a time. They have security gear and blindfold glasses and they will select a weapon of the choice and they will be able to enter the destruction room and have a minute to destroy whatever they want whatever they like On the same time we are behind the wall playing music and sound effect a bit like a video game experience and then uh, once the minute is over the person can pick up one item one of the furniture and then bring it here in the repair room to repair it with duct tape once the object is repaired with duct tape, the object goes back in the distraction room
0: to be
9: destroyed by the to be destroyed by
1: again by someone else <laughs> exactly so it's a constant circular flow of objects.
7: Elsewhere the festival included a tour of the Prater amusement park, Vienna's largest, and an exploration of the surrounding area's Jewish heritage and at the nearby Postal Savings Bank, a masterpiece of early 20th century architecture. Vienna's University of Applied Arts, known simply as the Angewandte, sold works by its alumni.
5: My name is Eva Weber. I work at the Angewandte Interdisciplinary Lab. And I'm hosting currently the Sachen Angewandte Alumni Workshop, which is part of the Vienna Design Week. And we are here in the former Postsparkasse. So since we moved in here two years ago, with the space, like the former cashier hall and all the counters. The idea was close mm. to say, can we put something like over the counter or exchange is a big topic here? Also with the cafe exchange, like what else can we exchange? Mm. Maybe the artworks to the public in a sense. It's like a little pop up in a sense. Yeah. Yeah.
7: The festival tackled other topics too, including urban agriculture and the concept of cereal production back at Festival Headquarters, Laura Housley, a British design journalist and curator, created a show called The Series.
10: The Id- I mean the idea of The Series is this way of working is very typical for this group of designers. We're not pointing at this and saying that we've observed something that nobody else has observed. It's common to sit somewhere between art and industrial production in this kind of small-scale making. Um, with independent production is very common. it's how a lot of kind of new designers emerging designers work. So with the series, what I wanted to do was just explore that and so look at the different contortions that some of these designers put themselves through in order to produce multiple works. and of course, to produce multiple works is to survive.
7: There may be no one theme binding all these various shows together. But there is one binding idea, an idea that's behind every installment of Vienna Design Week. The last word to festival director Gabriel Roland.
3: My predecessor, Lily Holland, she, she always used to say, sooner or later, Vienna Design Week is going to end up on your doorstep. You know, We're, we're a nomadic festival, so each year we uh, pick a district and we pick a different building in this district. And we uh, look for ways on how to uh, make this district approachable. I think this is a fascinating approach both for visitors because they see the place they visit in a very different way that we wouldn't maybe normally. Um, but it's also an important thing for, for the people living here because it gives them agency over their surroundings. Yeah.
7: For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev.
3: And now
0: a highlight from the Monocle Daily. Despite traveling extensively over the last month to promote his economic policies, President Biden has not yet succeeded in lifting his flagging approval ratings. Only this week, a new poll showed that on economic issues, the president enjoys the approval of just 35% of American voters. That's a record low. And in poll after poll, the issue of the 80-year-old president's advancing age is cited as a major reason by nearly 7 in 10 voters who say he should not be seeking a second term in the Oval Office. So is there any possibility that Joe Biden will have a rethink? From Washington, correspondent Simon Marks reports on the growing pressures on the president to drop out of the 2024 race.
4: When I ran for president four years ago, I said we are in a battle for the soul of America. And we still are.
9: It was just over six months ago when Joe Biden released that video announcing his intention to seek four more years in the White House. He wanted to finish the job, he said, in a video that relentlessly promoted the president's energy and youthful zeal.
11: That's why I'm running for (laughs) re-election.
9: The image makers even included a brief glimpse of Joe Biden running in the video about him running. And the announcement ended... With that heartbeat motif, a clear indication that Biden wanted to silence any suggestion that at 80 he should be readying himself to leave office, not stay in it. Six months on, that strategy has not entirely worked. Is Joe Biden the person who can stop Donald Trump or somebody like Trump who gets the Republican nomination? He's got to look in the mirror, search his soul and make that decision. I'd like him to think that through carefully. David Ignatius is a highly respected Washington Post columnist, a fixture in this city for decades, a whisperer to many presidents past. Last month, he decided to break with the Biden White House and start saying the quiet stuff out loud true this summer. I haven't gone anywhere in the country. I haven't talked to any group of people uh, where this issue of whether President uh, Biden should run again hasn't been a a centerpiece of conversation. And I thought that it was time to to raise that question, whether uh, Joe Biden is the best person to carry this legacy forward. In that interview with left-leaning MSNBC, you could hear him oh so respectfully broach the question of whether the president should drop out of the race and let a younger more energized democrat serve as the party's standard bearer next year the mere fact that ignatius put that discussion into the public domain effectively declared open season on the issue of joe biden's age
4: it's a very big deal because david ignatius is one of the one of the princes of the Washington political and journalistic establishment. Brit
9: Hume, veteran political analyst with the right-leaning Fox News Channel. For him to come out
4: and say this now, I think he is telling and the people of the Biden administration have to worry that if this starts to, to catch on with other uh, leading liberal journalists it could become a stampede.
9: Certainly at the White House, there are signs that the horses are restless, even if they're not yet actively engaged in a stampede. Reporters who previously had held back from asking why Biden thinks it's sensible to remain in office until he's 86, now pepper Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with questions about the president's plans.
0: How does the president plan to convince the American
5: people over the next year that 80 is not too old for someone who's running? for re-election.
3: 80's the new 40, didn't you hear? In 2019, he got the same criticism. In 2020, he got the same criticism. In 2022, he got the same criticism. And every time, he beats the naysayers. In recent
9: appearances, President Biden has acknowledged that he knows his age and visibly slowing energy is an election issue, but he insists he's got enough gas in the tank
4: to keep going. You may have noticed... A lot of people are focused on my age. Well, I get it, believe me. I know better than anyone. But there's something else I know. When I came to office, this nation was flat on its back. I knew what to do. I vaccinated the nation and rebuilt the economy.
9: Those comments at a campaign appearance last month in New York were a fresh effort to derail suggestions that he should stand aside. But some younger Democrats are restless and they include one congressman who may still challenge Biden for the party's nomination. It's important for democracy. Uh, to
0: have choices, uh, to have competition.
9: Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota on Monday, he announced he's stepping down from leadership positions within the party, fueling fresh speculation about his plans.
0: I'm concerned. Uh, I'm concerned that there is no alternative. I'm concerned that something could happen between now and next November that would make the Democratic Convention in Chicago uh, an unmitigated disaster. And. For a party that is acting as the adults in the room, thank goodness, I'm concerned that we are not as it relates to Uh, our electoral strategy.
9: For him and anyone else eager to oust Biden from the party's top spot, the clock is ticking. Most analysts believe if the president really decides to drop out of the race, he needs to do it by the end of November in order to give the party time to organize itself. But from the president's camp, there is no indication that is going to happen. Instead, a determination to get voters to keep focusing on the strength of that heartbeat. For Monocle Radio in Washington, I'm Simon
0: Marks. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
7: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
12: To find out how we could help you,
7: contact us
0: at UBS.com. We're back with The Curator. And this week, London is hosting its film festival. And I had the pleasure to speak with Christy Matheson, the new BFI Festival's director.
10: The festival is really uniquely placed to service audiences really well and also industry. So it's this lovely mix where you get to present films with the filmmaking team there, but you're presenting them to audiences who have found these films and, you know, got themselves to the cinema. And then alongside that, we have a really robust industry program as well. So sitting alongside the audience program is a whole suite of events where people are, you know, doing business, they're seeing works in progress. So it's a lovely mixture of both. And that feels very satisfying to present.
0: And one thing, you know, I was looking at the numbers. Apparently, there are, correct me if I'm wrong, but 252 titles from 92 countries. I mean, this is such an opportunity because, unfortunately, a lot of the small films, I know, even with the amazing work of the BFI, but sometimes they do miss out. People don't know where to find them, right? So I think this is the perfect opportunity for any cinephile out there, right?
10: Yeah. And I think what's lovely is that, you know, the, the program, which I pulled together with a very, very talented team of programmers, Everybody who works on the festival has their own unique taste in cinema, their own perspective on cinema. And so that really allows us to present an enormous range of films. So, you know, we divide the program up across many different ways but you know if audiences feel like they want to go to the cinema and have a laugh we've got films there which we point you to our strand such as thrill you know if you want to go out and see some really thrilling films so we try and divide the program up in a way that maybe also people can think about the mood they're in or maybe who they might be going to the cinema with and choose something that they feel will align to that.
0: I already noticed one change in this year's Film Festival, which is I have the catalogue of films and it's in a more of a, of a handbag format here. I think that that's, please continue with that. I really enjoy that.
10: <laughs> well, you know, we, we love our brochure, but this year we opted for a, a more compact version. One, it's just much easier to you know, to pop in your pocket or your bag and and carry about and hopefully people will be reading it on the tube and on the bus and as they're moving around the city. But also, you know, we really thought about how we were writing about the films. So, you know, all of the people who program the films write the film notes and we really tried to sort of condense those, not to put sort of less detail in, but we thought it would be helpful and, and make make the films more approachable to people who maybe don't always go to festivals. So we sort of tried to make it compact and pithy um, but not lose any of the smarts along the way.
0: I love it already. Let's talk about some of the films. The festival will be opened by the new emerald fano, which is Saltburn, and I have to say I'm so excited about that because Promising Young Woman was such an amazing film. What can you tell us? Because you've seen Saltburn,
10: from what I I can see, indeed, yeah. (laughs) You know, I feel like it's a fizzy thrill ride of a film. It's got enormous production values. It's got an incredible cast, but it's also just underpinned by this laser sharp writing and so the characters are really sharply drawn and they're given great dialogue and so it's a very thrilling film to watch because you're seeing performers who are having clearly an exceptionally fun time making this film. but I just like the way that you know with the last film we we saw the world through the, the eyes of a woman and, and her navigating the world and this time you know um, Emerald has turned her gaze onto young men and it's equally as thrilling.
13: You think you'll go home?
3: Honestly? Home doesn't mean the same for me as it does for you, Felix.
4: Well, why don't you come home with me? Come to Saltburn.
0: Yeah, oh, I've seen the trailer. Uh, I mean, it looks uh, amazing, and there's a new Chicken Run as well. There that's a bit of a, <laughs> a surprise after so many years. I love, I love the first one, so I think that's also quite an exciting.
10: Yeah, addition. Th- we're we're so happy to have this film, and very very proud to have the world premiere of Chicken Run to Dawn of the Nugget is its full title. Mm-hmm. But this will be our Mayor of London gala. And we're so excited. We have a very, very fun red carpet planned for all everyone who's going to come along to see the film. But I think for anyone who loves the original Chicken Run, you are not going to be disappointed. <laughs> but what's great is that film really stretches across a number of generations. And so I just love the idea that at this screening, you know, Royal Festival Hall will be full to the brim of many generations of Chicken Run fans. So I think it's going to be such a fun, fun time.
8: Last time, we broke out of a chicken farm. Well, this time...
10: We're breaking in.
0: And let's talk about curation because it's amazing. As I said, the festival is very open to the public, but also very different genres as well. It doesn't, of course, you have the wonderful art house films and, and potential Oscar favorites mm-hmm. later this year. But you also, I don't know, it feels to me quite open. It feels to me that there's no prejudice when it comes to genres. If it's a blockbuster or a little art house from you know from whatever country in the world.
10: Yeah, I think that what makes what makes this program so fun to put together is, you know, like I said, I'm working with an incredibly talented team of programmers. And so there are some films that we've all seen and we all love. And there are other films that, you know, are nominated by two or three programmers. So what's kind of great is that we're all pulling together a collection of films. And really for us, you know, we're thinking about, you know, what is going to be a defining film for cinema this year, are there stories we haven't seen on screen yet? But it's really underpinned by quality. So we're really looking at the, you know, the directors and the film teams who are really using cinema as a language to do something. And so I think that by having very broad parameters and really thinking about the audience, so that is really how we make our decisions. We lend our programming through thinking about audience. And, you know, with with a country like the UK, which is so incredibly diverse, it just gives you so much scope. You can really, you can meet many, many audiences. So that's really what we're trying to do.
0: When it comes to cinema, of course, uh, you know, the industry have been challenged by COVID, the strikes in the United Mm -hmm. States. The economy in general and many other aspects, are, are you still optimistic? I mean, if you look at the selection of films, you wouldn't think there is a crisis in the in the cinematic world, but are you still optimistic about cinema in general?
10: Yeah, very, because, you know, I think... I think cinema loves to sort of beat itself down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like for as long as I have been working in this industry, there has been a crisis and people, cinema is dying, cinema is dead. And then every year I watch more films and I'm overwhelmed by how incredibly talented and creative people are. And I'm overwhelmed by the stories that I'm seeing. So, you know, there were so many more films that we loved, which we couldn't put in the program. Uh, for lots of different reasons. And I'm sure that when we start viewing again in November after this year's festival wraps, we are going to be so delighted and surprised with all the new films that we're going to meet. So I I certainly think for someone who gets to see a lot of films, there's certainly no artistic crisis in cinema, that's for sure.
0: And now we turn our attention to The Manchester Mill, a news publication that has built a loyal following for its in-depth investigations and alternative stories about the city. With sister titles now in Liverpool and Sheffield, its subscription-based model is being tipped to transform the regional media landscape in the UK. Monaco's Charlie Fumacourt went to meet the team behind the Manchester Mail to find out more. It's no
13: secret that the number of quality regional news outlets across the UK is dwindling. From 2005 to 2018 there was a net loss of 245 local news titles across the country. This rather bleak outlook has led many to question whether there is still a market for quality local journalism in the digital age. However, over the last few years, a publication in Manchester has been bucking the trend. Founded in 2020, The Manchester Mill is a reader-funded outlet, built around the coverage of local stories with depth and nuance. It's a model that's proved extremely successful. Having already expanded to Liverpool and Sheffield, the company was recently valued at £1.75 million and has just raised £350,000 for further expansion. To find out more about the publication's success and what it means for local journalism, I spoke to the Manchester Mills founder, Yoshi Herman.
2: So I came up with the idea during the first lockdown in the pandemic. And I was living with my mum at the time. And I was doing a bit of freelance journalism, but I didn't have much on. And I think the inspiration came from seeing other people on Substack who had made paid newsletters. And I noticed that a lot of people on Substack had made newsletters that had a lot of paying subscribers, but they weren't publishing much. I would always thought it would be cool to do a local thing, it would be cool to do a quality thing funded by subscriptions. But the problem in my head had always been, how do you produce enough content for people to pay? And then once I saw people on Substack were like writing one or two stories a week and people were paying five bucks a month, I thought actually there could be an opportunity there to create a really high quality local news uh, model that doesn't have to produce sort of 20 stories a day.
13: And so you say it began in the pandemic, How did you go about getting it off the ground? I mean, was it a case of just trying to gain attention through the quality of your stories? It was good timing, actually,
2: because in the pandemic, people really wanted to know local information. Like they really wanted to know what the latest data was in the pandemic. They wanted to know the infection rates. And I think there was also a sense that some of the media reporting could get a little bit sensationalist. And therefore, it took off really quickly. Like I think within a few months, we had about 5,000 people on the email list. So in a way, like it was bad timing to start a business. But on the other hand, to start a media business that gives people like good quality information, it almost perhaps worked
13: to our advantage in that sense. And so the Manchester Mill is different to local newspapers. You know, There's no breaking news. There's no classifieds. Would you say it's a different way of covering the city?
2: Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to reinvent what city journalism feels like. I think that... It's supposed to be local news, local journalism that doesn't feel like local news. It's supposed to feel more in depth and more thoughtful and more nuanced. I don't think journalism should just be about giving people information. I think it should also be about inspiring people to feel better and to feel more connected to the places they live. So we try to do that and we try to like publish like an eclectic mix of journalism that will try and hit those different points.
13: And you touched on it there, but you know, local journalism at its best, can hold power to account, particularly local governments who are probably not, you know, as much under the eye of the, of the national media. A lack of funded regional media obviously threatens this. How important is this aspect of journalism for you at The mill?
2: I think holding people to account is a big part of journalism. I don't think it's the only part. Like, I don't think it's the only thing we should be focusing on because, as I think I, I said before, I think there needs to be, like, some joy to it. I think there needs to be some upbeat stuff. There needs to be culture. There need to be, like, new ideas. But when we think about holding people to account, I think it's as much about holding business to account as it is local councils or local government. Yes, there are issues in local government that need to be exposed, incompetence and sometimes, like, low-level corruption. But there's also just a lot of businesses that get a lot of hype and who put out press releases that get sort of reproduced in these local outlets, but who don't get scrutiny. So I think a big focus for us has been scrutinizing where power really lies. And sometimes that's local government. So that's been like an interesting like, learning for me is like, identify in your city like, where the power really lies and who's really exploiting the sort of attention economy that exists in a place like Manchester.
13: And I guess looking at the business side of things, you know, the Mill has ran special print editions, there's the Mill members club meetings, you have a podcast. How important is this other aspect of the business in you know cementing your place in the community? But also, I guess, in terms of running a modern media business?
2: Yeah, I think the community aspect of media is massive because I think what a lot of media companies have done in the age of sort of like mass online scale and clickbait is they've lost their connection with readers. And I think if you want to redevelop that connection with readers, A, you have to make sure the journalism actually respects people's intelligence and their time. You can't be misleading people with headlines. You can't be writing about inane celebrity stuff that you just got off Instagram. But The second layer of it is you have to develop that connection you have with people. If they like your journalism, you have to meet them and talk to them and ask for their support and ask for advice. I think we're closer to our readers than almost any other media company in the country because people come along and they talk to us. People get in our email inboxes about stuff. I've never had this level of sort of like interaction and engagement with readers that we have now. So I think it's a big part of it. I think a big part of media is community. It's not just about the stories. It's not just about giving people information. And in a city, you need that because you need people to tell you what's happening. You need sources to come out of the woodwork. I want to be the place where if people aren't getting paid by their employer or they're getting screwed over in some way that they come to us. And I think you can only have that if you've got like a community rather than just sort of an anonymous set of
13: readers. Now, it's been covered quite a lot in the news recently that the mill has, you know, it's had a valuation. It's now received, you know, significant investment. Um... What's next?
2: Yeah, so I think the first thing is we've raised money from some great people and we want to carry on doing what we're doing and just do a bit more of it and be a bit more ambitious. We want to go to a few different cities. Currently, the Mill is in Manchester, then we've got the Post in Liverpool, we've got the Tribune in Sheffield. So we've got three publications that work together as a team. But we would like to go to a few more places. And there are journalists in those places who are getting in touch with me saying, hey, would you consider launching here? Would you consider launching here? So we've now got the cash to do that. We've got some... I think some support and advice from some really good people in the media. So Mark Thompson, who used to run the New York Times and the BBC, now he runs CNN. He's one of our investors now. Dame Diane Coyle, who's a professor at Cambridge, who knows a lot about regional economics and the rebirth of cities. She's one of our investors. So I feel now we've got a team of advisors and helpers who will be really helpful. I think we're getting more media profile, you know, partly as a result of interviews like this. So I think the next stage is about taking what we've learned in these three cities and trying to kind of scale up the company. We've only got like two reporters per city plus some editors and freelancers. So I'd say we're very much a microcosm of what we could eventually be.
13: As the company looks to the future, the bedrock of the success of The Manchester Mill is ultimately the quality of its journalism. In particular, it's the ability to find and tell the stories about the city that aren't being covered elsewhere. After all, it is this that people are willing to pay for. Here's the publication's senior editor, Sophie Atkinson.
11: I'm really proud, even though it isn't my story, of Yoshi's reporting in Oldham on the internet personality slash conspiracy theorist Mia, who has basically completely transform the political landscape since he's been doing digital broadcasts there. I was really impressed by Molly Simpson's reporting on drink spiking in Manchester, which was cited as evidence in Parliament by a Labour MP who was campaigning for a law against drink spiking. So currently, if you want to prosecute a drink spiking, you have to use some sort of archaic 1800s law about poisoning. Then, of course, there's Jack Dalhanty's work in the hospitality industry. He's covered hospitality workers who aren't being paid he's also covered the bullying behavior of Simon Martin who is the head chef at Manor which is currently Manchester's only restaurant with a Michelin star it's not
13: all serious stuff there are also some fun stories on the mill notably I thought that the, the deep dive into the viral fast food shop was a particular highlight you know it must be nice to also be able to showcase this other side to the city as well
11: yeah, I completely agree. And Manchester is a city with a great sense of humour and a lot of very funny people. I think traditionally local journalism has been a little bit po-faced, perhaps. And yeah, it's nice to do slightly sillier or wackier or maybe more niche stories that you wouldn't normally get a chance to pursue.
13: Maybe just finally, in the UK, it's kind of it's long been held the fact that you know if you want to build a career in journalism, you've probably got to move to London. How important is it to you and to to the company that There are now outlets in cities across the UK and so you know people can work in their home cities or they don't have to go and just move to the capital.
11: I think that's an essential part of our mission. As someone who's from Manchester and like very unhappily, um, very reluctantly uprooted themselves and moved to London, I don't want people who grow up here to have to keep doing that. And also it makes for quite a boring media landscape. I mean don't get me wrong I think you know so many publications in London are doing the most amazing and excellent work but I do sometimes think there's a little bit of a similarity in tone and maybe that's just caused by being in a bit of an echo chamber I think having journalism in as many places as possible is obviously only going to be an advantage for both the people who live there and for how stimulating the media scene is as a whole across the UK.
13: With expansion on the horizon, it's an exciting time for the Manchester Mill and its sister titles. It's also an equally exciting time for the cities that they serve, from increased scrutiny on those in power to creating a more healthy and diverse media landscape. These publications are making a positive contribution to their cities. Perhaps most importantly, though, this reader-funded, community-based model is not just proving popular, but economically viable, too. And when it comes to local journalism in the UK, that's not something that has been said for a very long time. For Monocle, I'm Charlie Filmercourt.
0: And we are back with The Curator. And now for food neighborhoods. The Chinese diaspora can be found across the globe, populating Chinatowns from Manila to Manchester. One of the most storied lies in Vancouver, Canada's west coast metropolis perched on the Pacific Rim. Monaco's Gregory Scruggs takes us for a tour. With the
12: first immigrants setting up shop in 1886, Vancouver's Chinatown is among the oldest in North America and retains a vibrant, traditional life of mahjong parlors, table tennis matches, and Lunar New Year celebrations. Chinatowns are famous for their food ways, but in Vancouver, you'll find much more than dim sum. In fact, for a survey of the new Chinatown food scene, I didn't even start with Chinese food. That's fine.
14: Hello, my name is Giovanni Mascagni. I am uh, the owner of Fiorino Italian Street Food, which is a restaurant located in Chinatown in Vancouver. Our restaurant um, always wanted to be in a central location in Vancouver, uh, close to a lot of foot traffic and in a great food scene. Uh, We wanted to be surrounded by great restaurants and great cocktail lounges to be... A part of a larger picture.
12: And what does, for someone who hasn't been to Vancouver's Chinatown before, and maybe has an image of the North American Chinatown with herb shops and noodle houses and Peking duck hanging in the window, describe this food scene in, in Chinatown. Sounds like there's more. Not, but no disrespect to traditional Chinese food, but it sounds like there's a lot more than just Chinese food going on in Vancouver's Chinatown today.
14: I remember coming in to Vancouver uh, when I was around 25 years old and uh, that's almost 10 years ago now. The main thing was that Chinatown was very attractive for the restaurant scene and and the after-dinner scene as well. There is um, so much going on in Vancouver in a lot of different neighborhoods, but Chinatown is the most diverse. It, has, it offers a little bit of everything, but it also offers a lot of authenticity. It is uh, one of the more affordable areas of town, especially uh, downtown. We always saw Fiorino as being a, a part of this um, since the beginning of its uh, conception.
12: You've been open for almost two years. You've been honored with a Michelin Bib Gourmand and Michelin's first guide here in Vancouver. Uh, how have you been received in Chinatown?
14: The Chinese community and Italian community go way back in Vancouver. There is a building just down the block from us uh, owned by Angelo Tozzi, a uh, very Italian man, uh, who opened the, actually opened his shop In the early 1900s, I think it's as back as 1903, if I remember correctly, and now his son is running uh, the shop, his name is Angelo, and he is uh, a gentleman in his 80s um, who is still running the shop just down the block, so we can go source some Italian ingredients right here in Chinatown. Do you mind
12: actually telling me about the sandwich I'm about to enjoy?
14: Yeah, so this Michelangelo sandwich, we call it Michelangelo because we feel it's a little bit artsy uh, in a sense that it has a uh, crispy pancetta, but then it has a walnut sauce and a little honey. So I think you'll really enjoy it because I know you have a busy day, so this one won't be too heavy for you. After my sandwich, I was craving a pick-me-up.
12: I'm usually a coffee drinker, but rather than have an espresso at Fiorino, I went across the street to a very attractive shop where a floor to ceiling display of teapots beckoned me in.
5: My name is Olivia Chan. Uh, I'm a second generation tea master at Treasure Green Tea Company in the uh, heart of Chinatown, Vancouver. We've been here since 1981. Uh, my parents started the shop and I took over in 2003. Uh, our tea shop actually started off when we immigrated from Hong Kong in 1977, long time ago. And when we first came, uh, my parents took us down to Chinatown and said, hey, and uh, the first thing we looked at, my father was looking for was tea. And then we couldn't find any tea shops. The only place that was uh, the tea was uh, available was in the herbal shops. So... My dad bought some tea, and then we brought it home. He said, my dad said, oh, my goodness, this smells like herbs. It's not tea. So immediately that dawned on my parents that we can make it into a business so the newcomers from abroad can enjoy their staples. So that's how it got started. Um, so we started planning uh, the tea business in 1979. Uh, China, China wasn't open for free trade at the time, so it took two straight years communicating with China. I saw my father's notes and telefacts that they were using to communicate. It was just boxes of them. And um, that was very difficult to start a business at the time.
12: What is Chinatown like today, especially from a a food and drink perspective? Uh, And how does Treasure Green Tea fit into that scene? It, it, It seems like it's a bit of a bridge between Older Chinatown and some of the newer trends we're seeing in the the businesses.
5: Treasury Green, being in Chinatown for the last forty-two years, we have witnessed a lot of changes. Part of it is being very vibrant when we um, started our business in eighty-one, actually, and uh, it's just so even difficult to find a parking space. It was just like fighting for a spot to park. So business was very, very good then. And then people started to move out of Chinatown to, you know, the different little Chinatowns here and there. People no longer required to come to Chinatown to purchase their, you know, uh, regular Chinese goods. So for us is, my dad always say, if your products are good, people will come and find you. You don't have to go chase them. Just stay where we are. They will come to you. So that was the golden rule that my father gave me. So I decided to stay, but I want to attract more, not just newcomers, but particularly new generations. We want to um, share our heritage. I want to bring tea into other people's lifestyle. For example, um, we would have tea every evening after dinner, and that's how we talk about our day. It's an excellent connection, how we connect one another. That's the only little time that you say, oh, okay, put everything down. Now we need to connect with one another.
12: Just a few doors down from Treasure Green Tea Company, something delectable caught my eye. Blind Tiger Dumplings dishes out flavors from across China. And as I gather, there is more than meets the eye to this simple counter-service spot.
15: My name is Lewis Ha, I'm the owner of Three Kingdoms Hospitality. And uh, also the owner of Blind Tiger Dumplings and La Wai Cocktail Bar. Chinatown's always had kind of quote-unquote those speakeasies with the last one closing in the 1990s called The Green Door. We wanted to kind of revitalize that aspect of Chinatown. And the front is a dumpling shop, you know, typical street-facing bender with, with like late-night dumpling eats. And uh, if you uh, order a certain item off the menu, then uh, you whisked away into the fridge to, uh, to enjoy a little bit more of an alcoholic experience. Chinese cuisine is very provincially uh, set. And so our menu is more of showcasing different cuisines within Chinese cuisine. Uh, it's such a vast and unique cuisine unto itself but each province is so uh, defensive and proud of uh, what they bring to the table for example we have shepherd's purse which is a Shanghai's shanghaiese uh, dumpling uh, shepherd's purse is uh, a green vegetable similar to spinach with a, a lot more aroma to it the skin is going to be a lot thinner and another example is the bison momos where that's a tibetan cuisine tibet generally has thicker dough uh bison we we source because we can't get yak uh so <laughs> that leaner more gamey meat um but really really flavorful with the the thicker dough and with the sepen and with the uh, peppercorn soy that we add to it in terms of sourcing we get 90 percent of our ingredients within a 20 meter radius So we use Kali hot pot next door, we use Tinley across the road, Olivia for any tea uh, that we need, um, garlic across the road, literally 10 meters away for our fish as well. So we try to keep everything as close to the front door as possible. Chinatowns across the world are always known for the quality of food, the uniqueness and also uh, that heritage of being uh, a late night spot as well. Vancouver's Chinatown had its heyday in the 70s and 80s before sweeping things kiboshed, the the whole late night scene. Uh, Now that's coming back. And so there was an element where uh, what we noticed was there's a lot of dim sum places and a lot of uh, legacy restaurants that serve the daytime, but there wasn't a late night dumpling spot. And so we found a hole in the market there. Uh, The other side of it as well is we chose this building because next door was a jazz hall sammy davis jr played next door uh, way way back and so uh and across the road was hogan's alley and so there's always been that element of this being a late night district uh, and while the revitalization of chinatown happens that was what we wanted to bring to the table
12: how have you been received in chinatown is there a, a relatively peaceful coexistence between the newcomers and some of the traditional biz- businesses that have been here for generations Anyone who
15: lives, works and stays in the neighborhood has been nothing but welcoming, like the most positive and supportive people. Um I can name-drop for hours for the number of people that have just made this so much easier. There's always people that don't understand why someone like myself is going to open in Chinatown. Uh, and sell dumplings Um, and and you're always going to have that curiosity and sometimes vitriol for people that don't understand but for me when i'm walking across the road and i'm being welcomed while i do my shopping and people are leaving work from a legacy business and then coming in for food after work like you know that you have that mutualistic and and
12: friendly neighborhood that makes this easy but also makes it fun i devoured a quartet of dumplings for good measure but it was still a little early to ask for the number seven and be whisked away into the Wai speakeasy. Later that night, however, I made my way to the Kiefer Bar, ranked among Canada's best for several years running since it opened when Vancouver hosted the Winter Olympics in 2010. Like all of Chinatown's best new food and drink spots, it pays homage to the neighborhood. They source ingredients from local herb shops to give their cocktail recipes an eastern twist. I saddled up to the tightly packed bar and ordered a pineapple daiquiri. There was a funky flavor alongside the grilled pineapple, dark rum, and lime juice. That would be the Chinese mushroom, Yunji, a staple of Chinese medicine. Some studies claim it cures cancerous tumors. I was just happy to settle for a night on the town. For Monocle in Vancouver, I'm Gregory Scruggs.
0: And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator, The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Thank you for listening.